Classics. Hello, hello, and today I am standing up for Lucien. So Lucien is born around 120. That is obviously the year, not the time. Um, very, very specific sundial. <laughs> Maybe to give you an anchor in time, that's about two years before the start of Hadrian's Wall being built. So it's around about this time Hadrian's going around telling everyone it's going to be a really great wall. And the barbarians are going to pay for it. Um, Usually for this programme, uh, Lucian is neither a Greek nor a Roman. I know, he was from Samosata in what is now Turkey. So his first language would have been a dialect of Aramaic. But he wrote in Greek, and he would have certainly also been fluent in Latin, by the way. He wrote in Greek, Attic Greek. It's the equivalent as us writing in the style of Chaucer, nearly. Right, so that's how, ancient Greece is a lot longer in time than you think it is. It's about 2,000 years it covers. So he is a polyglot, as we have established. He is also a polymath, right? About 80 of his works survive. They're quite short, but even so, that's a lot. And they cover an extraordinary range of subjects. There are comic dialogues, there's prose fiction, there's a guide to how to write history, there's dialogues of some courtesans, there's a history of dance... And there is also, it's a really important thing. Hardly anyone ever writes about dance. If we didn't have Lucy, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> most importantly, at least for me, he is responsible for the single earliest text which one could legitimately describe as science fiction. Lucian is not a household name. It's not even a household name in my household, to be honest with you. And I've been researching him for months. Hey, sweetie, guess what Lucian said on this? Hmm? Lucian, out of Lucian. Oh, never mind. Um, but he was once a household name. He was translated by, for example, Erasmus, out of the Erasmus scheme, <laughs> by Thomas More, out of Thomas More's Utopia. He was an inspiration for Jonathan Swift for Gulliver's Travels. He was an inspiration for Goethe. We'll come to that later. He has a dialogue which describes Timon the misanthrope. So, you know, indirectly, maybe directly, he is perhaps an inspiration for Shakespeare, for Timon of Athens. There are about 80 texts remaining. I'm going to make a quick mention of two. One where Lucian talks about a friend of his, somebody that he really admires, a sort of eulogy, I guess. And that is a man named Daemonax, uh, which I'm pronouncing like that to try and avoid the fact that it is spelled Demon Axe, like an Amityville horror. <laughs> He's kind of a pithy, kind of brusque kind of man. And Lucian is obviously fond of him. And he relays all these sort of bon mots that Damon Axe um, issues as though they were hilarious. But a bit like when someone says, oh, you should meet this guy. He's so funny. And everything they say makes you go, I should never meet this guy. <laughs> he sounds appalling. <laughs> Um, and thus, an example of Damon Axe's great wit is that he sees a man, a stranger, I think, in the street who is admiring his toga, his new woolen toga. And he's admiring it because it has a thick purple stripe on it. And so this conveys that he is a very wealthy man. He's obviously just become rich enough to have this kind of toga. Now, don't get me wrong. I think admiring your own clothes in the street is no kind of behaviour for a grown man or woman. But there it is. That's what he's doing. And Damon Axe goes up to him and says, do you know who was wearing that before you? A sheep. <laughs> That's one of the nice things he says, is it? <laughs> you just have visions. Did he have the most broken nose of anyone in the ancient world? 
Because I myself would have probably given him a thock. Do you know what I mean? He clearly deserved it. Lucian is less of a fan of a man named Alexander, who claims to be like a reincarnation of Asclepius, the god of healing. He's clearly some sort of snake oil salesman, basically. And so Lucian has been slagging him off all over the place, and then they meet. They meet, and Alexander has clearly heard that Lucian has been slagging him off. And then when it becomes clear to him that this person in front of him is Lucian, he holds out his hand imperiously for Lucian to kiss. And Lucian takes it and bites him. (laughs) This is genuinely one of my favourite things in all of literature. How many people have you met who could have done with a good bite? (laughs) I have got a list as long as their arm would have been (laughs) before I had bitten it. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome to the stage Professor Edith Hall. So, Edith, why has Lucian been so cruelly forgotten by us? Because we are so dumbed down. He is just so extraordinarily sophisticated. He is the soul of rational, secular wisdom... He's everything which we most need in the 21st century, but haven't got. And he pretty much died out with the European Enlightenment. You quite rightly pointed out that he really didn't like Alexander, and there was a reason for that. He was very, very, very sarcastic about imperialism. What he cannot stand is charlatans of any kind. And he can spot them a mile off. And dialogue after dialogue is about superstition, the crazy things that superstition makes people do. And it doesn't matter whether it's the Syrian goddess Astarte or this new strange thing that people said is the son of God from Galilee. You know, all of these, as far as he's concerned, make humans behave irrationally. And you have a particularly convincing theory that the passing of Peregrinus um, is is a foundational text for Monty Python. Well, of course it is. And nobody knows this. When people say Lucian who, I just want to say, did you enjoy Life of Brian? Peregrinus, Brian, they sound a little bit the same, don't they? You know, they've got an IN in, you know. But the life of Peregrinus is about a charlatan. He's a a Greek criminal who's got a record for some rather unpleasant goings-on with young men. And so he runs away and is taken in by these rather gullible people who, who say that they believe in Christ... They take him in, and when they find him writing something one day, they say, oh, gosh, this is the word of God, you are the son of God. And he says, OK, fine, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a good gig. That's OK. <laughs> and they all start hurling themselves in front of wild animals, amphitheatres in his name, and rich people send him secret money saying, I'm a Christian, but I can't tell you I am because I'm actually the governor's wife or something. And he rakes in all, all this money and um, has an absolutely wonderful time. And it's quite clearly a spoof on, on the life of Jesus Christ, which is even more clearly one that the Pythons must have read at Cambridge University because it's one of the very few pagan portraits of what a Christian looked like if you were a highly educated, sophisticated, multicultural, rationalist philosopher from um, Turkey. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And you saw these nutters as he saw them. What they really couldn't get over was the death wish. Yes. Nobody cared in the Roman Empire what these guys worshipped behind closed doors. All they had to do was come along once a year to the public sacrifice and not get thrown to the lions. Would they do it? No, they wouldn't. It was, I want to go to the lions. 
this is how he portrays them. It's, it's incredibly clever and incredibly fun and incredibly interesting and has been a foundation text for a comedy that actually got banned in Devon. <laughs> they should have called it Life of Peregrinus, of course, Monty Python's Life of Peregrinus, but it doesn't have the same ring. No. <laughs> I guess the first of Lucian's dialogues that I'd like to look at in a bit more detail is one called Charon. Charon or the Observers, it's called, where Charon, who is, of course, the ferryman who rose souls across the river sticks into the underworld, um, decides he would like a day off. So, you know, Greek myth, but given a kind of a Lucian spin where it becomes a little bit funny and a little bit strange and eventually a little bit melancholy. Charon decides he would like a day off. And to be fair, it looks kind of grotty, uh, the River Styx, if we think of book six of Virgil's Aeneid, where uh, we're introduced to Charon in that, and there are loads of souls kind of thronging at the side of the river. They can't get across because they don't have any coins to pay him so that he'll, he'll ferry them over to the underworld. Don't pay the ferryman, signed Christoburg. Well, Christoburg, <laughs> look what the alternative is. <laughs> also, what have you got against paying ferrymen? <laughs> he might be saving up to buy his lady friend a red dress. <laughs> Love those, Christopher. <laughs> Fair dodger, honestly. Um, so, so, though, <laughs> Charon decides he would like a day off from the gloomy river sticks, and so he decides to go up to Earth and get somebody to show him around. And the tour guide he decides on is Hermes, the god Hermes, because these two are already chums. Right? And the reason that they know each other already is because Hermes has a, a job, which we don't talk about very often. You know, we get the whole winged sandals, because who doesn't want winged sandals? And the messenger of the gods thing, because, you know, winged sandals, so he can go faster than regular people. But we tend to miss out the bit where he escorts the souls of the dead down to the underworld, right? Or down to Charon, at least, in his role as anyone? Psychopomp. Uh, who doesn't want to say the word psychopomp? It, it doesn't happen often enough, and that's not even in my life where you get to say things like psychopomp almost all the time. Uh, psychopompos, obviously, in the Greek, but psychopomp for us. They go on a little tour to have a look at things. They climb lots of mountains so they can peer down and see us all from above, but Karen can't really get the detail from that, so they decide to come back down again. We seem to be oppressed by this sort of dark cloud of hopes and fears around us. They're trying to work out, you know, how come this guy looks so happy when he's with somebody who's going to their destiny is to die but he doesn't know it yet and eventually they conclude that we are all like bubbles in a spring or a waterfall or something so you can't tell what size the bubble will get to you can't tell you know when it'll pop but we all pop in the end so Edith the Charon dialogue is one of your favorites I think yeah. why is that okay well Lucian is obsessed with death and one of the great things about trips to the underworld of any kind, or literature set in the underworld, is that you can talk to people who've been dead for 700 years. Yes, and, and he also, does this, sorry. you get to use the word catabasis. Catabasis. Oh, I like saying that. Yes. Well, trip to the underworld, there we go. Absolutely, the catabasis, the going down story. But it's not just the going down. I mean, although Aristophanes, who he adored because he was so funny and satirical, had set the frogs in Hades, it's not actually a comedy about how funny it is to be dead. <laughs> Lucian invented comic theatre about how funny it is to be dead. <laughs> One of my favourites is actually just the, the dialogues of the dead, where lots and lots of dead people... So somebody comes down and says, ''Oh, I want to see Helen of Troy.'' Whoa, oh, oh, oh. And he's given a skull. 
right? It's just like with the teeth falling out. And he said, you know, what? that's Helen. You have very strong emphasis on the fact that death is the great leveller. This is what fascinates him. So he has the people who were really poor and beggars, like Thersites, people who lording it down there because they're alongside Gyges and Solon. And, and don't we all really want that? Don't we all just want to be down there with Rupert Murdoch saying... <laughs> <laughs> Look at you, you know what I mean? Um, at one point, he actually talks... I mean, I think, he, I think he's a communist. I think, <laughs> I think he's a revolutionary communist. Um, but it's wit used in, in the cause of puncturing pretension. His most amazing work, Lucian's most brilliant work, by any measure, is the true history. Now, I have to tell you that it is not a true history. <laughs> Although that is in its title... And Lucien doesn't want you to think it is either. It literally opens with him saying, this is a true history and you should not believe a word of it. <laughs> because he's being parodic, right? There's clearly a tendency at the time for sort of outlandish travel writing where people claim to have gone on a holiday somewhere and then to have seen, you know, Heracles or a centaur or something. And then they come back and say, oh yes, when I went to this place, I saw these things. And he has had enough. Like I told you, he's a very sceptical person, Lucien, and he gets quite grouchy about this sort of thing. So he decides to spoof it with his true history, in which he, Lucian, and his companions go on a trip and very quickly they find themselves caught up by a whirlwind and then deposited one week later on the moon. <laughs> uh, take that, Dorothy, huh? Um, <laughs> but do you know what? It takes them a week to get to the moon. But if you went by rocket, it would take you like two, two and a half days. He's not out by that much, actually... <laughs> You know, obviously a rocket is going to be faster than a whirlwind. Don't be stupid. Um, <laughs> but it's not like he thinks it'll take a year to get there. You know, he's not out by that much. And when they get there, I mean, just the fact that it's a place is kind of extraordinary. We're used to seeing in Greek myth that the moon is a person, a goddess, Selene, right? And yet there it is, a place, a physical location that they can just go to. And from there, they look down and see a place covered in forests and rivers and seas. And they realise that that's the earth where they've come from. This is written in the second century CE. Remember that for quite a lot of centuries following, you can be burned at the stake for thinking that the Earth is round. So I'm just saying. And when they get to the moon, they discover every single trope, pretty much, of modern science fiction. There is an intergalactic war going on. What's that I hear you say? An intergalactic war as between the Force and the dark side, or between the Federation and the Klingons. Yes, exactly that kind of intergalactic war. Yes. So in this instance, it is between the king of the moon, Endymion, and the king of the sun, and they are having a war. And that war is being fought through the medium of their alien armies. I know! In the second century! I can't tell you how extraordinary this is. And their alien armies are made up of sort of strange, deviant, mutant creatures. Sometimes another feature of science fiction, blending two creatures. And also a secondary feature, giganticism. So there are vulture riders. So these vultures are the size of horses, right? You can ride them like that. There are flea archers. They can jump and ping an arrow. <laughs> There are sort of weird mushroom men. I can't think about those because I'm fearful of mushrooms, but let's not dwell on that. There is an ant cavalry. Do you know what that is? Starship troopers. Yes, it is. Bugs. Giant bugs. I'm so afraid of bugs and mushrooms. It's quite a stressful text for me. Um, and the, the greatest of all these creatures, just in case you're wondering, the lacanopterone. Lettuce-winged birds. <laughs> 
what you basically have is a bird powered by one of your five a day. <laughs> Our heroes arrive on the moon and they help solve the problem of this war. Exactly like in original series Star Trek, where they pitch up somewhere, there's a war between, and they are the sort of peacemakers. They help solve the problem of the war. Yet more sci-fi tropes to come. Number one, gender role switching. So on the moon, we're told it's the men who bear children. I mean, this could be original series Star Trek, couldn't it? <laughs> Just astonishing. Equally strange, don't shoot the messenger, this is Lucian, not me. Equally strange is the fact that in reverse world on the moon, bald men are the hotties. <laughs> also true in Star Trek, Patrick Stewart, Avery Brooks, bald men are the hotties, I'm just saying. So they you know, resolve the war and then they come back down to Earth. And this is absolutely glorious to me. Everything that you adore about sci-fi, right, can be surely distilled into this. That referential nature of it, where it kind of does a little hat tip to another piece of something. So as they come back down from the moon to the Earth, they kind of stop in. They notice cloud cuckoo land. <laughs> cloud cuckoo land, you may know, was invented by Aristophanes in the 5th century BCE when he wrote his play The Birds. The birds have had enough of Athens always being annoying and at war and blah, blah, blah. So they set up a rogue alternative kingdom in the sky, cloud cuckoo land, populated by birds. As they come down from the moon, obviously between the moon and us will be cloud cuckoo land. And so they see Crow and he, you know, has a few words of advice for them. And then they head back down to Earth. Almost immediately they go underwater where there are more strange mutant creatures like sea satyrs. And then they get eaten by a whale for ages <laughs> and that is where it all goes a bit Jules Verne it's just astonishing this is the most extraordinary piece of writing and to my enduring shame I hadn't read it I got through my whole degree as a sci-fi nerd without reading this I'm constantly mortified now I feel shame for this every single day in my defense I think classicists didn't realize for quite a long time that this was the earliest piece of science fiction because when they read it they saw it quite understandably and correctly as a parody you know as a comic work and it didn't occur to them bless classicists it didn't occur to them that it might be both parodic and funny and science fiction because I guess they were in the library when Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy <laughs> was being broadcast <laughs> would you please welcome film critic and sci-fi nerd Matthew Sweet Matthew Sweet, um, this Carol narrative reminded me of a film which I don't think I've ever seen, but the title always stays in my mind, which is Death Takes a Holiday. Death I know Takes a Holiday, yes. <laughs> a film of 1934, in that moment before, rather, I suppose, Edith, as the, as the Christian Enlightenment might have spoiled things for a few writers around the time of Lucy, and the Hayes Code stopped Hollywood filmmakers pursuing their desires. So it's a very interesting space, and into this space, in a story set uh, amongst the, the aristocracy on the Riviera, comes death on holiday, taking a vacation in the form of Frederick March, <laughs> looking very Caron-like, it has really? to be said. In he comes through the French windows, involved in a kind of miasma, looking exactly like Caron in Clash of the Titans. Yes. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's The French canon, windows aren't obligatory, I think. <laughs> it's... it's, it's a crucial part of the Greek myth. <laughs> and he has, he has come. He wants some time off. He wants to live in the world of mortals. He wants to drink wine. He wants to feel alcohol flowing through his veins. And this is, causes quite a few problems for the people around him, but also subtly alters the nature of the world as well, because whilst death is on holiday, 
Nobody dies. So they go to the races and all the jockeys fall off the horses and get mangled up on the ground. Miraculously, everybody's okay. A school burns down, but strangely, all the children survive. There are sporting disasters of various kinds and everybody just dusts themselves off and nobody really knows what's happening. But that's because death is not, you know, drawing people down and and trying to uh, tick them off his list. He's there in the stalls just looking and enjoying himself. I think, is, is it a sort of archetypal story? Because there are twilight zones, aren't there, which sort of rework that story. So the sort of mundanity of death and how sort of samey it must be and the idea that you'd want to break from that sameness. Certainly the idea of the bored immortal wanting to spend some time on Earth or that supernatural figure who is, who is immortal but jealous of the, of the mortal and corporeal world is a trope that film goes back to and, and literature. I mean, Dracula is sort of a version of that story too. Too, um, the figure who wants to uh, to escape this Transylvanian netherworld and move to Whitby, which yes. I think is you know, an excellent idea if you really want to enjoy all that life has to offer. <laughs> it is a ge- legitimate goal, in my view. Now the. True histories, Matthew. This is an astonishing text, isn't it? And I know you are, if anything, more of a sci-fi nerd than I am. What on earth did you think when you read it for the first time? I was gobsmacked. Why don't I know about this? Edith said Lucy and Who, and I think she's right, in effect, because, uh, you know, Lucy and Who sounds like a good basis for a story to me. We'll just call him... The Lucian? Yes. (laughs) But yes, all of those familiar tropes are there in this text that people have been writing, I think, under the anxiety of influence of without really even knowing it. Somehow it's all been commuted through time to them. And the kind of the fruit and veg emphasis of it all was a bit of a surprise to me. I mean, we have have these creatures who use mushrooms for shields, literal asparagus spears to attack the enemy. And instead of laser beams, they're firing radishes. <laughs> um, you know, if you've, ever, if you've ever dealt with a radish, yes. the potential for pain... They have a ballistic ever, quality, certainly. Yeah, yeah. If you've ever made a salad in the nude, for instance, you know, the radish is a dangerous, uh, dangerous customer. Not for the first time in this programme I find myself saying, well, you've got to have a hobby. Um... <laughs> I tell you the thing that it really put me in mind of, and I, I, I feel sure that there is something in this, is a wonderful book by Naomi Mitchison called Memoirs of a Space Woman, about this woman who is part of an expedition, travelling in exactly the same way as Lucian. They hop from planet to planet. Um, we're in a different environment with every chapter. And these environments are so strange and so exotic and so precisely imagined. She goes to a planet where there are all these flat creatures who live in these strange houses and come in and out of the letterbox. And she also has this extraordinary experience where she is accidentally impregnated by a Martian member of the crew who tries to... (laughs) We've all used that excuse, Matthew. (laughs) These these creatures have to keep away from humans because their reproductive system is telepathic. (laughs) And if you get too telepathically intimate with one of them, then you're up the stick, basically. (laughs) And there's an explosion on board the ship, and she's about to die, but one of the Martians comes over and, in effect, gives her a kind of mouth-to-mouth, and, aye, aye. and she's... And there she is, and she has... And one of the most fascinating things about the story is that we go through the pregnancy with her, and we also get to hear quite a lot about the childcare 
arrangements. And reading the section of uh, the true stories about those people who can give birth and they'll have wombs in their legs. Oh, yeah, and the calves. It just seemed, yeah, no, no, you know, yeah, no, For those are the guys, aren't they? Yes, yeah. indeed, yes. Mm. But that idea of, of those physical kind of transformations, I feel sure that she must have known this work. Still, though, although the true history is a tremendous text and one of which I'm an enduring fan, there is one more text that I would like to mention to you, and that is the Philopseudes, the lover of lies. Because this, too, is a strangely foundational text. It, it's sort of like a a kind of competitive ghost storytelling, I guess, like the four Yorkshiremen sketch, but with ghost stories instead of poverty of childhood. And thus, you know, there's one man going, oh, I saw the ghost of my late wife. Oh, that's nothing. I saw the ghost that could turn into a dog. Well, I saw a ghost that could do a different thing. Well, I saw a man with really thin legs ride a crocodile. Wait, what? Um, <laughs> the crocodile whisperer turns out to be a man named Pancrates, who is a sort of magician, I guess. And we hear a bit more about him. The narrator travels with him for a while. And when they arrive somewhere, he says, Pancrates will take a, a brief room or a pestle and he will dress it in clothes um, and then he will murmur an incantation and then the broom or the pestle will go off to the market and buy their food or will go and collect their water and come back and everyone treats it as a person and then when it gets back he murmurs a second different incantation and it becomes an inanimate object once again and our narrator says you know I was really keen to find out what this spell was but he was normally very open about telling me these things but he wouldn't tell me And so I eavesdropped, I hid behind something and I eavesdropped and I heard him doing the incantation to convert it into a moving thing. And I waited till he wasn't there and then we arrived somewhere and, you know, he wasn't around. And so I took a pestle and I dressed it in clothes and I murmured the incantation and I sent it to collect water. And it brought the water back, but I didn't know the incantation to turn it back into a pestle. And so I took an axe and chopped it in two and then I had two pestles and both of them wanted to go and fetch water. And then Pancrates returns and he murmurs, he's very angry, he murmurs the incantation to turn them back into inanimate objects and he's never seen again, he's so furious. But that is, of course, the earliest telling of The Sorcerer's Apprentice. (laughs) And it is so close to the version in Goethe that he must have read it, right? And if Goethe hadn't read it, then Paul Ducasse probably wouldn't have read Goethe and wouldn't have written his piece of music about The Sorcerer's Apprentice. And if Paul Ducasse hadn't written that then maybe Walt Disney wouldn't have included The Sorcerer's Apprentice to that piece of music in Fantasia. So what I am telling you is that the whole fortunes of the House of Mouse (laughs) depend upon Lucian, a man of whom virtually no one has ever heard. That's what I'm saying. So I guess I want to wrap up this programme by saying it's okay if you don't like science fiction. It really is fine. We're probably not friends in real life, but that's okay. Um, It's okay if you don't like Disney movies. It's fine if your heart is cold and icy and you are not warmed by anything from Fantasia to Frozen. Although, to be fair, your heart is cold and icy. You should love Frozen. Um, You can read Lucian and not like him too. I don't even mind that. I just demand that you at least know that he existed. This is a writer who sent men to the moon 1,800 years before NASA. And when they got there, he had them hang out with lettuce-winged birds. (laughs) When NASA has yet to even find the clangers. Natalie Haynes stands up for the classics. It was written and performed by me, Natalie Haynes. My guests were Professor Edith Hall and Dr Matthew Sweet. Our producer was Mary Ward-Lowry.
Next week, Natalie is joined by Armando Iannucci to 